Welcome to the Jacksonville First Seventh-day Adventist Church Podcast, where we listen, learn, and love together. Our speaker today is Pastor Jonathan Panado. I, I didn't speak about the three horns in our last sermon together, but I do want to talk about them now. Is that okay? Uh, historically, we're, we're coming back here. Uh, re- remember, what does, the, um, what does that terrible beast represent? What nation does that terrible beast represent? Rome, that's right, okay. And then what do the ten horns represent? Yeah, the the ten major European tribes, and and they're listed there on the screen. And then the little horn power arises, which is the church, the, the Roman Catholic Church, the Roman Church. And then after the Roman Church arises, then three of those horns are plucked out. And so the horns, again, are, are the, the ten horns are what? The ten European nations. Um, so the, the Bible prophecy tells us that the little horn would uproot three of the, of the European tribes. So historically, this is what happens. When the Roman Empire falls, there's now a vacuum of power in Rome. And there are different European tribes who are conquering and occupying Rome. And at the same time, the church is also fighting for political ascendancy. This time period was a tumultuous time period. Um, In fact, chaos and instability are normal every time there is a change of regimes. And just think of the Middle East right now and Iraq. A lot of instability going on, a lot of chaos uh, because there's been a change of government, and that's just normal. And that's what was happening during the time of the Roman Empire when the Roman Empire fell, a lot of chaos, different, different groups trying to fill in that void and, and, and take up that seat of power. And so when the Roman Empire falls, there are, diff- are, there are three different European tribes that occupy Rome, and these tribes were quite powerful politically and militarily, and they also believed in something that the church did not believe in. And that's Arianism. Arianism is a belief that Jesus is not divine. And so these three tribes are a um, political threat to the church. They're also a religious threat to the church because they don't believe in the divinity of Jesus. And so what the church did through its influence, it mobilized other nations to annihilate those three European tribes. Talk about genocide. Talk about mass murder. And sure enough, those three tribes, the, the Heruli, the, the Vandals, and the Ostrogoths are just wiped off um, the face of the earth. There's no, there's, they're just, they just don't exist anymore. They were just completely wiped out. Once the three Aryan tribes were no longer in the picture, the church established itself as the undisputed political and religious authority. This goes to show the power that the church held in those days. Um, imagine, I mean, just imagine, I, I love using my imagination, and we're going to use it a little bit more here later on, but imagine the Adventist church wielding that kind of power, that kind of political power. Let, let me give you a hypothetical scenario. Um, we believe that on the seventh-day Sabbath, we should worship the Lord. We should abstain from working. And um, because of that belief, our church members, they sometimes struggle 
um, because of their employment. You know, their employer won't, won't give them the Sabbath off. Um, and, and, and there's some countries where there's less liberty than others. And so imagine the Adventist church, you know, having, having political power so that when a church member is struggling with the Sabbath and, and their employer doesn't want to, you know, let them go or whoever's in charge doesn't want to let them go. Imagine the Adventist church having so much power that they can just take whoever is causing the problem. They can just take them out. Of course, what we mean by taking them out is either getting them fired, right? Getting them fired or, or not allowing them to be elected in office. Imagine if the Adventist church had that kind of power. Would that be a good thing? Or a bad thing? But, but we would only be using our power for good things, right? So our church members could have the Sabbath off. Wouldn't that be a good thing? We promised we would only use that political power for good ends. A slippery slope, isn't it? I mean, it almost is enticing, isn't it? It's a slippery slope from there. And that's why as Seventh-day Adventists, we believe in the separation of church and state. Um, so important to protect liberty because power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. So now, you know, when we talk about these tribes, I mean, this happened in the, what is that, the fifth century, 476, 493, 538 in the fifth, sixth century as well. Um, and so some people say, well, his, who cares? I mean, that happened such a long time ago. Um, it's in the past. But the thing is that the book of Revelation tells us that the Roman church will continue to have and exert political and religious power in the present. And that in the near future, it will usher in the final crisis of the mark of the beast. So it's good to know what happened in the past because it helps us to make sense of what's happening in the present. And so as an example, in our day of how the Roman church has worked with the nations for specific political outcomes. Do you remember this cover of Time magazine? Back, I don't know if this was the late, the late 80s or the, or the early 90s, probably the early 90s, right? In the late 80s, early 90s, the, US, the United States of America and the Roman church they united against the common enemy of communism. Um, because that's what you do when you have a common enemy, right? What was it saying? The enemy of my enemy is, is my friend, right? So that's what you do when you have a common enemy. And communism was a threat to the church through its secularism, through its atheism, through the persecution that the church suffered. And communism was also a threat to the United States. And so the church and the United States unite and who would have thought that the Iron Curtain would fall through an alliance like that, that the church could be so influential in bringing down communism? And we may say, well, it was in a good end, right? Because who likes the commies, right? <laughs> not, not us, not here, right? So, uh, so that, was, that, that was a good thing, right? But what you see here is the church uniting with the state for a specific political um, outcome. And that's not the last time that the Bible tells us that the church will do that. It will continue to do that. And it continues to do that in Europe. It continues to do that here in the United States. It does that in South America. It does that in different places of the world for specific political ends. And so as we come to the end of Daniel chapter 7, we come to find out that Daniel is distressed because of the spiritual welfare of God's people. And so three years later, Daniel receives another vision which addresses his concern regarding the spiritual condition of God's people. 
in how the little horn affects it all. Turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 8. What similarities do you see between this vision in Daniel 8 and the vision of Daniel 7? Okay, I I wrote down some. Yes, we have animals, as we've stated already. The ram has two horns, one higher than the other. We mentioned that, the bear. Uh, Now, the ram, notice uh, Daniel chapter 8. Notice Daniel chapter 8. Here's another similarity. Daniel chapter 8 and verse 4. I watched the ram as it charged toward the west, the north, and the south. How many directions do we have here? Now, is it a coincidence that the bear has how many ribs in its mouth? Three ribs as well. You know, the, the directions, and, and this ram represents Medo-Persia. We see that in Daniel chapter 8, and verse 20 and 21. And so you see the similarities between the bear that represents Medo-Persia, uh, the ram that represents Medo-Persia, the three ribs were uh, the three nations that uh, Medo-Persia had to take out before they came to the ascendancy, which, which I believe were Babylon, Egypt, and, and I think it's Lydia. Um, but um, those are the three nations that, that Medo-Persia had to, had to come against, had to defeat. And we see those same directions, moving those same directions in Daniel chapter 8. Good. Um, how about the goat not touching the ground? What is, what's that all about? How does that... The leopard? What does the leopard have? Has wings, you know? So here this goat is fine. The leopard, the leopard has wings as well. You see these similarities. And from what direction is the goat coming from? He's from the west. You know, coming, coming to the east. I, sh- I should have put the map up, but, um, but where is Greece in relation to um, the Middle East? It's west, right? And Alexander the Great, when he began to conquer, he came from the west, moving towards the east and conquering um, the, the, the Medes and the Persians. Okay, um, we mentioned that, the four wings, the, the four horns, four prominent horns versus the four heads. We mentioned that there's the little horn. Um, the little horn is doing the same thing in Daniel chapter 8 that he is doing in Daniel chapter 7. He is, um, God's people are being delivered into his hands. Truth is being cast down to the ground in Daniel chapter 7. He speaks words against God and he's changing the times and the laws. Um, And then also another similarity. In Daniel chapter 8, we also have a scene of judgment. Of judgment. The key word there is the sanctuary will be cleansed. That's the key word there for the day of atonement or the day of judgment in Daniel chapter 8. And in Daniel chapter 7, we have books that are opened, and the judgment is set. So we see judgment in both, in both chapters. Uh, some of the differences between the visions, things that are maybe missing or things that are in addition to the vision, is that while we have animals, um, these animals are different in nature to the animals that we saw in Daniel chapter 7. Right? We have a, a ram and a goat. These are things that we normally find where? Oh, yeah, in the sanctuary. I was thinking of a farm. <laughs> but, yes, in the sanctuary, right? But these are domesticated animals that you have in the farm, right? How many of you have a lion on a farm? Have you seen a lion on the farm? I think there's some, but, but that's, not too, that's not too often. You have to think you have a special permit, special cage, these kinds of things. But, yeah, these are domesticated animals uh, versus wild beasts in Daniel chapter 7. And as was mentioned, these are the specific animals that were used in the sanctuary service, um, which is a theme that pops up in Daniel chapter 8. And not only are these the two animals that were used in the sanctuary service, but these are the two animals that were specifically used on the Day of Atonement, which is Judgment Day. Leviticus chapter 16. Um, Which again, this chapter, what you see this chapter doing is addressing Daniel's concern. Not so much the nations and the rise and the fall of the nations, but more of the spiritual impact that this is having on God's people. The judgment, the sanctuary. Um... Babylon is missing. 
We noted that. They think that means that, that that's not going to happen, that Rome, Rome isn't going to exist. Um, Babylon was already passing, so Babylon was kind of out of the picture already. What we're doing here is that principle of repetition, recapitulation, and enlargement. Daniel's concern is for God's people, and so now the vision is focusing in on the little horn. We spent enough time talking about the nations. Now what we want to do is zoom in and focus. How does this affect God's people? Do you see that there? We're zooming in into Daniel's concern of God's people in the spiritual welfare of God's people. That's an important point there. Daniel 7, the focus seems to be persecution of God's people. In Daniel 8, the focus seems to be the little horn's war on God. Daniel chapter 8, Daniel chapter 8 and verse 20, the interpretation, let's kind of move on here. Daniel chapter 8 and verse 20, the interpretation is pretty straightforward. The two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of Media and Persia. Verse 21, the shaggy goat is the king of Greece, and the large horn between its eyes is the first king. The four horns that replace the one that was broken off represent four kingdoms that will emerge from his nation, but will not have the same power. So the shaggy goat is Greece, the first king. What was his name? The first king of uh, Greece? Alexander the Great. Incredible that, that the Bible prophesies this centuries before this happens. And then it says that the Greek kingdom will be divided into four, which is exactly what happened when Alexander the Great um, died. Okay, so that's easy, right? The difficult part is the interpretation of the little horn. Here's where things get tricky. Daniel chapter 8 and verse 23. In the latter part of their reign, when rebels have become completely wicked, a fierce-looking king, a master of intrigue, will arise. He will become very strong, but not by his own power. He will cause astounding devastation... And will succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy those who are the mighty and holy people. He will cause deceit to prosper. He will consider himself superior. And when they feel secure, he will destroy many and take his stand against the prince of princes. Yet he will be destroyed, but not by human power. And then Daniel is told the vision of the evenings and the mornings. That has been given to you is true, but seal up the vision for concerns the distant future. You know, so Daniel has a certain excuse not to be able to understand these things because it was sealed. Um, and, and he says it concerns the distant future. So here's, here's a difficult part of the little horn. Um, we know from Daniel chapter 7 that the little horn power represents the Roman Catholic Church. Um, and, and, and this is an estimation, what we read here, an estimation of, of, of heaven's view of what's happening. And so we go back to verse 9 to look at the characteristics of this little horn. Verses 9, Daniel chapter 8, verse 9. Out of one of them came another horn which started small but grew in power. It grew until it reached the host of the heavens. And it threw some of the starry host down to the earth and trampled on them. Now, now let's stop there. Can the little horn, which represents the Roman Catholic Church, can it literally go up into heaven? No, it can't. We're, we're using symbols here. We're, we're using images here. But the Bible is telling us that it grows so great 
So it starts at little, but doesn't stay little. It grows so great that it goes all the way into heaven. Does that sound like anything else you've read in another part of the Old Testament? Oh, wow, that's a good one. I hadn't thought about that one. Good, good job, guys. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I was also thinking, which is, which is, I think, still a symbol. I think this is an image of rebellion. That's what the Tower of Babel represented, was a rebellion against God. Um, Isaiah chapter 14 and verse 12. There's a prophecy of Lucifer. And what did Lucifer say? Sister, Sister Louise, that's, that's what you had it? What did Lucifer say in his heart? I will ascend to the heights, to the heavens. I will establish my throne above the stars of God. And I think, I think this is echoing to us the power behind the little horn. Growing up all the way into heaven, casting the starry host down to the ground. In Bible prophecy, stars represent angels. And who was the one who cast stars down to the ground? Who cast the angels down to the ground? You know, Lucifer, you know, Satan did. Um, imagery and then trampling on them. You know, and so now this is envisioning the little horn doing these things, but it's an echo of Satan. It's an echo of who really is behind it. That this little horn is, 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 is uh, for lack of a better word, is messing with heaven, the things of heaven, with angels even. The little horn, the Roman Catholic Church. And so I ask you, is, there, is it a coincidence that there's this prominence in, in the Catholic Church and, and this um, preoccupation with saints and with angels in the Roman Catholic Church. Let's keep reading here. It says um, in verse 11, it set itself up to be as great as the commander of the army of the Lord or the prince of the Lord's host. Who is that individual? Jesus, that's right. Um, There's a passage in Joshua where Joshua uh, sees someone, I think right before he's going to go to Jericho, um, uh, he has a, a vision and someone appears to him. And that individual, and then, um, uh, let me see, Joshua asks them, are you for us or are you against us? And what does the, what does the individual say? He say, I come here as the commander of the Lord of hosts, of the host of the Lord. You know? So this little horn is setting itself up to be as great as the commander of the Lord's host, which is another, another description for Jesus or, or for Michael. Is it any wonder that the Roman Catholic Church the head of the Roman Catholic Church calls himself the vicar of Christ on earth. You know, they may not say these things and we may not be aware of these things right now and they don't throw them in our face, but these are things that they believe. These are things that they haven't rejected. They still believe this. And when the Pope came to the United States of America, we saw it, how people flocked to him more than they would flock probably to anybody else in this world. Little horn power sets itself up as great as the commander of the Lord's host. You know, and, and, as, I'm, and as I'm saying these things, it's, we're not against people. We're not against Catholics here. We're not against Catholics. We're not against people. We're against ideas and values and, and, and institutions and, and systems. And, and the, whole Protestants, the whole Protestants arose because they were protesting against the evils of this institution and, and where this institution had crossed its bounds and gone beyond what, what it should have gone. And so here it says, let's continue reading here in verse, in verse 11. It took away the daily sacrifice from the Lord. The daily is, is a word used for the, 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 um, 
the sacrifice and the spiritual ministration that would take place in the sanctuary every day for the forgiveness of sins, it says here that the little horn would trample that, would take that away. Casting the sanctuary down to the earth. So now no, that, that sanctuary down to the earth. If sanctuary is cast down to the earth, uh, what does that mean about where the sanctuary was? In heaven, right? Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1 and 2. We have a high priest who has sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty where? In heaven. And who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle, set up by the Lord in heaven and not by a mere human being. Is it a coincidence then that the Roman Catholic Church has a system of priests who we go to confess our sins to, shutting out from view Christ as our high priest? The sanctuary was thrown down. Verse 12 is interesting here. It says, because of rebellion, the Lord's people and the daily were given over to it. Here it mentions rebellion. I think some translations say because of transgression. The word here used for, for transgression in some translations is literally uh, rebellion. In the Bible, there, is, um, there are different words for transgression. Um, there's there's a, a word that is used specifically for uh, unintentional mistakes. That's a form of sin. And there was a specific um, offering that you would present in the sanctuary for unintentional mistakes. Now, mis- uh, even though they're unintentional, mistakes are still mistakes. Uh, they still hurt somebody. They, they, they still do something against someone. So they need to be forgiven and they need to be atoned for. They, there's another word in the Bible for sins and for transgressions, and that is deviousness. That, that inner working that we're all kind of a little crooked, aren't we? In our own way. You know, we all kind of have this little, we're kind of crooked, this little deviousness inside of us, that inner working, and there's a specific offering for that little crookedness that, that we have inside of us. Um, there's another word for sins as iniquity, which were those wrong actions, those transgressions. But then there is this word rebellion. And rebellion is, is the worst of the sins. In fact, for rebellion, there was no provision in the Old Testament sanctuary for the forgiveness of rebellion. Rebellion being that high-handed sin, this is what rebellion sounds like. It's a conscious choice. It's high-handed. I know what I'm doing, and I know that what I'm doing is wrong. I know that what I'm doing is going to hurt you. I know it's going to hurt God. I know it's going to hurt my family. I know it's going to hurt others but I'm still going to do it anyway. That's rebellion, the seared conscience. It's intentional. It is willful. And in the sanctuary, there was no provision made for the forgiveness of rebellion. I mentioned a book that I was reading from Dr. Scott Peck, People of the Lie. He's a psychiatrist, and he's studying. It's a study of evil among people. And he shares in that book a case of of an individual that he was counseling with uh, for three years. Her name was Charlene. Uh, He met with her about three to four times a week for three years. Charlene had grown up a Christian, and she had even taught Bible Bible doctrine um, in, in a school. And then something happened in her 30s, and she she lost that job where she was teaching. And um, something happens in her life, and she comes out as, as bisexual. And from that point on as well, she can't keep a job. 
Wherever she's at, she just can't hold the job. Just complete change from this person teaching in Bible to this person that, you know, just never saw coming. And so she goes to Dr. Peck for, for counseling, for, uh, for psychiatric help, to help her be able to, to, to get a job and keep a job. And he says he, from the moment that he first met her, he knew that he was not going to be able to help her. But he says every once in a while, I try to give the individual the benefit of the doubt, even, even if just for a learning experience. And so he continued to meet with her uh, three to four times a week for three years. And towards the end, Dr. Peck says, I, I saw that indeed Charlene didn't just have, she, she wasn't, uh, you know, we're thinking, well, maybe she was bipolar or schizophrenic or all these other different classifications that they have for individuals. You know, just when I thought I could peg her down, I realized that that's not what she was, whatever diagnosis he had in mind. Um, and he finally comes to the conclusion that Charlene, deep down inside, was evil. She would try to deceive him. She wouldn't be open with him. She would lead him down this trail. And then, uh, then she, she, would, she would say something else and go down this way. And he would confront her with these things. And he says, yeah, I'm lying to you. And he's like, Charlene, how do you expect me to be able to help you if you're deceiving me and not telling me the truth? She's like, well, I like to. I just want to do it. You know, it gives me a sense of power over you that you can't figure me out. And so Dr. Peck says that, that, that this concept of evil in people, uh, Charlene especially, says, was, was narcissist. Um, she says this, this focus on ourselves. He says that's the number one characteristic of people who are evil. They don't care about anyone else. They just care about themselves. They just think about themselves, whether their thoughts about themselves are good or whether their thoughts about themselves are bad. They only think about themselves. And so then one day Dr. Peck asks Charlene, illustrating what rebellion is, asks Charlene. He says, Charlene, you were a Bible teacher for, for several years. Uh, what do you think is the purpose of, of life and the meaning of life? And she says, well, living for the glory of God. And then Dr. Peck says, well, how about you try that out? And she says, no, I can't do that. She says, you see, there is no room for me in that. She says, that would be my death. And then he says that there was a moment of silence. And then Charlene got up from the chair and she said, I don't want to live for God. I don't want to. I want to live for me, for my sake. Dr. Peck said that he just fell back in his chair. chills. In fact, Dr. Peck says that he believes that she was possessed. That's what, my friends, that's what rebellion is. A willful, conscious choice of defiance against God. And in the sanctuary, again, I said it, there was no provision for the forgiveness of rebellion. There was provision for every other type of sin, but not for rebellion. When you go through Leviticus, in the first chapters of Leviticus, and you read the different types of offerings for the different types of sin, there is no forgiveness for rebellion. In fact, Paul tells us this. If we deliberately keep on sinning, 
after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left. That's rebellion. But only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. There's no forgiveness for rebellion, not because God is unable to forgive rebellion. In fact, in the Old Testament, God says, I am the God who forgives rebellion. There is no forgiveness for rebellion, not because God is not able to forgive rebellion, but because the rebellious feel no need for forgiveness. Dr. Peck finally says that, that Charlene just left. You know, she, oftentimes she would just leave, and finally she just left. She said, I'm tired of playing with you, and she just left and ended the session there. No better than when she first came. But having said all that, there was only once a year that provision was made in the sanctuary service for the forgiveness of rebellion. Do you know what that day was? The Day of Atonement, Judgment Day. Is it any coincidence here in Daniel chapter 8 that as the Bible is speaking about rebellion, it is also using the imagery of the Day of Atonement and of Day of Judgment? The one day when rebellion can be forgiven. And the passage here also tells us that, that truth was cast down to the ground. Is it any coincidence that it was during the reign of the Roman Catholic Church in the Middle Ages that all kinds of heresy and, 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 and wrong doctrine came into the church? Uh, when did we start worshiping on Sunday? It was during the time of, of, of the reign of the Roman Catholic Church. When do we start believing in that people, when they die, they don't really die, and they're still hanging around, and we can pray to the saints, and we can have interactions with them? It was during the time of the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, concepts like the Mass, all these kinds of errors, all this paganism flooded into the church. Truth was cast down to the earth, and, and, and we still haven't shaken loose from that error of the Middle Ages. In fact, it's, it's scary to see how quickly after the death of the apostles, error came into the early Christian church. Acts chapter 20, verse 29, the apostle Paul says, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. It is scary to see how quickly after the death of the apostles, the Christian church fell into all kinds of errors and heresy. Do you know that the first, if I'm not mistaken here, the first reference to the Christian church worshiping on Sunday is in the second century. I think it was like 115 AD, where there is a mention of the, the church already worshiping on Sunday. That's quick. I mean, the apostles died probably in the 70s. I, I mean, John was still around in the 90s. And just a few, couple decades later, the church is already worshiping on Sunday. How does that happen? The Bible t tells us here in Daniel chapter 8 that there would be a time that where truth would be cast to the ground, where there would be rebellion against God. And that word there, one last thing on rebellion. It says, the rebellion that causes desolation. The Apostle Paul makes a reference to this. Turn in your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, in verse 1 through 4. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1 through 4. The rebellion that causes desolation. What, what is that? Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed 
by the teaching allegedly from us or whether by a prophecy or by word of mouth or by letter asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. I, I like Paul here because you know, sometimes when we talk about the end of times, people get scared. And, and, and it's about alarmism and let's you know, run for the hills and, and, and that kind of stuff. And it's, it's already here and, and we freak out and we make terrible decisions. But the Apostle Paul is saying here, don't become uneasily settled or alarmed. Verse 3, don't let anyone deceive you in any way for that day will not come. Until the what? Tell it now. This is interesting here. Different translations say the falling away happens. Uh, some translations say until the rebellion occurs. Paul is referencing Daniel chapter 8. That the little horn would arise and a rebellion would take place. In fact, God's people would be part of that rebellion. But it, the word that Paul chooses uh, to, to, uh, in the Greek to write the word rebellion can be translated rebellion or, as some other translations say, the falling away, literally in the Greek, apostasia. Apostasia, from where we get the word apostasy. A falling away from truth. Paul knew it because he studied the prophecies of Daniel that a time would come that God's people would fall away from the truth. And that apostasy, that rebellion, led to the desolation, uh, the desolation of, of Israel, of, of Jerusalem, the temple being destroyed. The children of God, they rejected Jesus. The Bible tells us Jesus came unto his own, but his own received him not. They rejected him. That rebellion against Jesus, against God, caused the destruction of, of Jerusalem. The early Christian church then has an opportunity to be faithful to God, but they also fall away and they rebel against God. In, in fact, here, the Apostle Paul says uh, the rebellion occurs first or the falling away or the apostasy occurs and then that man of sin will be revealed. The man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped. He's referring to Daniel 8, the little horn power. So that he sets himself up in God's temple proclaiming himself to be God. In verse 7, for the secret power of iniquity or the, or the mystery of iniquity is already at work. The Apostle Paul in his day was already working. And then finally, the prophecy ends in Daniel chapter 8 with a time period of 2300 evenings and mornings. We won't talk about that here. We'll save that for our next sermon. But that, that, that reckoning of evenings and mornings is a reference to Genesis where Genesis says it was evening and morning, the first day. It's also a reference again to the sanctuary service, the ministry that took place in the sanctuary, the, e the morning sacrifice and the evening sacrifice for the forgiveness of sin. But we'll leave, that, we'll leave that there for our next sermon. Clearly, the focus, my friends, of Daniel 8 is spiritual and not political. Daniel chapter 8 reveals to us in greater detail that continued war against God by the little horn power. We see, these, we see this fulfilled in the corruption and the apostasy of the early Christian church, the developing of a human priesthood, of changing God's law, of, of having a head of, of the church or a vicar of, of Christ, uh, of the church other than Christ, of casting the truth to the ground, of corrupting biblical doctrine. And in all of this, this rebellion, this unwillingness to admit, to change, and to repent of these things. That's why the Protestants arose, protesting the evils of the church, wanting the church to repent. And yet the church will not change. It cannot change. It chooses not to change. 
But as I review this prophetic scheme, I'm encouraged and I'm filled with confidence regarding the reliability of scriptures. The Bible prophesied this so many thousands of years ago, and it happened just like the Bible says. And, and I love the way that we can trace and know where we are in the prophetic stream. You know, Paul could say, I don't want you to be alarmed. Look, I can trace it. This needs to happen first, and then this, and then this. When we see the prophecies of Daniel, where are we living? <laughs> if, if we're talking about Daniel 2... You know, we're already in, in, in the feet of, of iron and clay, in the toes even, of, of, an, of an empire, of a world that, that is weak and that is broken and that is crumbling. If, if we look at Daniel chapter 7, we are living after the 1260-year time period, the time when judgment is taking place. You see, my friends, the very next prophetic event will be the establishment of God's kingdom. We are living in the end of time. I don't know when it will all end, whether it'll be a year or, or 10 years or 100 years or 200 years. We don't know. It, that's in God's hands. We're, we're, in a time of, we're in a time of transition, but just like those living in the time of the gold, they knew, okay, another kingdom is coming. Just like those who, who lived in, in, the, um, in, in the time of the fourth empire in a transition, they knew that as they saw Rome falling and crumbling, they knew what was coming next. Um, God calls us to be faithful in that time. Can you imagine the prophetic energy it must have given those people who were seeing prophecy being fulfilled in their day? Living in these, living in these times of transition, at least those who were faithful and paying attention. It didn't happen in a day. It took time. But can you just see the excitement, imagine the excitement to see prophecy being fulfilled before your very eyes. Are you excited here this morning? To see what's happening, the very next event is the establishment of the kingdom of God. We're living in a transition time, yes, but we here in our day, we see the crumbling of an already weak kingdom of iron and of clay. The world is falling apart. We've seen the little horn arise, causing spiritual desolation. We see that it is still in power. The very next kingdom will be God's kingdom. This podcast is brought to you by the Jacksonville First Seventh-day Adventist Church. Connect with them at www.jxsda.org or on Facebook and YouTube. We look forward to sharing more inspiring messages with you.